What I wouldn't give to be known. That's something I'm wanting to camp out on today is the importance of our church being real. Of us being a place that people can be themselves when they walk in the doors before God and before his people. My name's TC. I'm the new pastor here at The Point, and I have to say thank you so much to all of you guys. Uh, we, we put this call out for pastor desserts, just a chance for me to get to connect with y'all, and I, I had a goal of meeting 150 people across nine desserts. We, and, and first of all, thank you because every single registration slot has been filled. So thank you so much for wanting cookies and getting me on the side, so thank you very much for that. But the second thing is, so cool. I mean, so far, apparently y'all been sneaking friends in and stuff on the registrations because we've already met with over 80 people just across four of the desserts. So we're very excited to see uh, how many more people we can connect with in the time. So guys, thank you for signing up for that and coming and hanging out. I look forward to meeting the rest of you at the desserts. And for those of you who didn't register for a dessert, please come and say hi to me, man. I want to get to know you. Keep reminding me names, but this is a church family and family tends to know each other. So please, I would love to meet my family and get to know y'all. Secondly, register quicker next time is what I'm saying, okay? So, so with all that being said, I want to I take a look back at, at my first week teaching here because there's something I want to call our attention to uh, that will help us as we launch into what's coming next. Week one, I talked about my desire for our church being focused on those who aren't here yet, I want to be a church that is focused on reaching people who haven't come here yet. And because of that, we have to be open to trying new things and leveraging opportunities that our community and our culture give us. If you read in your Bible in Samuel and in Chronicles, you'll read about a warrior named Benea. Everybody say Benea. Oh, okay, second service, y'all awake, y'all doing it, I like it. So Benea was this valiant, mighty warrior. He was the captain of King David's bodyguard. So if you're the captain of the king's bodyguard, you gotta be a boss, right? And Benea was, there's all these little stories uh, that share his incredible uh, feats and prowess as a warrior. And one of those is he faces off against this Egyptian giant. And not only is this guy bigger than him, but he's got him outgunned. The Bible says the Egyptian has a spear, which was the primary weapon weapon used in battle at this point in time, and all Benea had was a stick. And so Benea snatches the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and uses the Egyptian's weapon to claim his own victory. I think we have an opportunity whenever our community and our culture gives these things that we might, that, that some people in church get uncomfortable with, like Halloween. Some Christians think that's wrong. Some Christians think it's fine. But you know what people who don't come to church think about it? They think it's fun. And so if we can leverage this opportunity to snatch the spear out of the hands of culture and use it to claim a gospel victory, we are going to take it. And so we're going to do this. Since people seem down for the spooky season, people like their costumes and their carbohydrates and their candy this time of year, we are going to try and capitalize on that and use a little bit of the theming that's popular now. With Disney's been redid the Haunted Mansion. They got the zombies things going on. We're going to theme a little bit starting next, not next week, I got two weeks in my mind at a time doing the online recording, and it's a dangerous thing with my brain. In two weeks, we are going to start a new series that we are calling Mean People Scare Me. 
We're going to spend four weeks talking about how to bring your broken relationships back from the dead and dealing with the meanies in your life. And within this, we're hoping some of these themes and some of the creativity we're using will be an easy invite for you to invite people in your life that aren't here yet to come to church. And the final week of this series, we've got something very exciting planned that we think will be very good for giving our community some fun and some Jesus at the same time. And I'm going to tell you all about that next week. That's right, so the cliffhanger. You come back next week, you're going to find out. If you skip church next week, no one tell anybody that wasn't here, all right? They just got to wait and find out. So all that's coming up. I wanted to cast that vision because I know that Halloween can be divisive in church, but it can be a tool that we can utilize to reach the people who aren't here yet. So be open, work with me, ask questions if it gets uncomfortable for you. We're not going to be scaring anybody, but we're going to have a little bit of Halloween spooky fun, all right? So that's coming up. If you got questions, come talk to me. I love to answer questions, and if they're hard, I'm just going to scream and run away. So that's what's going on with that. Um, now that we've had all of our announcements on the front end, Let's get into the sermon today, all right? And I want to talk to you guys today about being real and honest. And that starts with me talking about my family. I don't know what it was like for y'all growing up, but for me, my parents were creatures of habit. They would seriously go on a restaurant binge for a year. Like every single time we didn't eat at home would be at the same place. It was crazy. Like the first place they did this with was uh, this local restaurant in Dayton, Tennessee called the Heartland Grill. We ate there so often that the owner of the restaurant became a close personal friend and would come to our house for dinner. That's backwards, right? Then after it was the Heartland Grill, we we started doing the same thing with Taco Bell. I mean, for weeks on end, it was the same meal at Taco Bell every single day to the point they would just have it on the drive-through like counter. We just gra- drive through and grab it. That was before mobile ordering. We didn't call in and order it. We just had a problem. It was apparently a Taco Bell problem that we would drive through every single day. They called my mama the gordita lady because she'd always get like a gordita there. And if you know what gordita translates to in English, that's kind of offensive because it means little fat lady. I don't think they knew that or my mama knew that at the time. But anyways, uh, and then after Taco Bell, it was Subway. Like, they always had a place. And then finally, I escaped this by graduating high school and moving out and, and got to experience something called variety. It was very exciting. Um, and so I, I lived in Florida for several years, met my bride, Cody. Um, we got married. And then after being in Florida for a while, uh, we moved to Michigan, accepted a church a position at a church in Michigan, moved up there. And it was just a couple minutes from where my parents lived at the time. So we moved in with them as we were getting you know, used to the area and buying a house and everything. And I had forgotten about my parents' extreme restaurant loyalty. Right, and so we moved in with them when we were, they were in their season of Papa Murphy's love. Anybody in here like Papa Murphy's? Okay, okay, two of you, okay. Um, well, my parents would have made it four of you guys. Like, they love Papa Murphy's. And it was every, like, I would come home from work every day, and there would be Papa Murphy's on the table. And, you know, for me, as a poor, young pastor with my young bride, like, you know, it was, it was quite a, a way for my parents to love on us by providing food every single night. But we had a secret, me and Cody. We don't like Papa Murphy's. And it was like a constant stream of Papa Murphy's pizza, nonstop. I remember me and Cody like having conversations at night in our room. Like I was trying to talk Cody off the ledge because she was reaching a breaking point. It's like, babe, listen, we can't afford any food. They're giving us food. It might not be what we want, but just hang in there. We move out in three weeks. You can do this. We got this. And then the next day, uh, we're sitting around the dinner table having for dinner Papa Murphy's Pizza, right? And Cody couldn't handle it anymore. She stood up and she said, 
I, I, got, I've, I got a confession to make. I haven't been telling you the truth. And the whole room got quiet. Like, I don't know what's about to happen. We were all looking at each other, and she said, I hate Papa Murphy's pizza and will not eat it again, right? My family still laughs about this great confession over the dinner table, and it, it broke up my parents' Papa Murphy's love, and they switched to Culver's like immediately and went on that for a year because they always got to have their place. Uh, but it was really funny. I mean, I look back, and Cody was wanting to enjoy dinner with her family, and what it required was her coming clean, her being honest, and being real about how she felt. And it's so many of us, all of us, I think, wear masks as we walk through our life. That depending on the environments, we behave differently, we dress differently, we talk differently, we act differently because we want to be accepted. And there's like this unwritten rule of every room that you walk in that there's an expectation that we must meet in order to be accepted. But only, but only true health can be achieved through vulnerability, through trust through honesty, through being real. But I say all that knowing that most people would, the last place they think they could trust their true selves would be in church. There was this guy a while back that he rented this billboard and wrote on the billboard, describe Christians with one word, and he put his phone number and he posted the results online and they were less than encouraging, right? People's, people, what they thought about Christians were that they were hateful, ignorant, hypocritical, and judgmental. That is what people think of the church. That is what people think of us. And because the reputation of Christ followers, that is what people think of Jesus. And for any of us that have been following Jesus for a while, that we read our Bible, we would say, no, there's no way. That is, that is the furthest thing from true. Jesus welcomes everybody with open arms. Jesus is the hospital to the sick. He is the hero of the broken. He is the rescuer for those who are shipwrecked and lonely. And I completely believe every single bit of that with everything I am. But if I wasn't a Christ follower, I'd know what I'd say to prove you wrong. Matthew 15. There's a story nestled in the middle of Matthew 15 that whenever you read it, you will find it awkward. You will find it offensive. I mean, if you've grown up in church and been to church every single Sunday of your life, there's a good chance you have not heard a sermon on this story because it is probably the most offensive, awkward thing that Jesus ever did. And if we read this story without understanding it, if we ignore this story, then we're ignoring what Jesus is trying to teach us through it. And so I want to I take a look at this story today. It's kind of a bold move, week three, teaching the topic that preachers don't like to talk about. And so if you get really upset, uh, please don't tell me. I'm just playing. We can talk about it after service. I might run away screaming. We'll see what happens. Anyways, so we're in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to take a look at this story together. Say that passage with me loudly so I know you're still awake with me. We're in Matthew chapter 15. Mm, all right. First service came out the get, gate swinging, but right now you guys are competing for most lively service, all right? All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, the most offensive thing Jesus ever did. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came from that, that from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. Hold on, hold on. This is, this is cute cuddly. Like, uh, this woman comes to Jesus crying out, begging for help. Her child is in need, and Jesus ignores her. 
It gets worse, guys. Hang with me here. So the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. She's bothering us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Is Jesus rejecting this woman because he's only here for Israelites, for Jewish people? And does that mean that she is a foreigner and therefore unworthy of Jesus? Guys, it gets worse. Next verse, next verse. Then the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus just called this woman a dog. And if you read, like I've, I've studied this passage because it is in the Bible in two separate places. Two different gospels record this interaction. And if it's in the Bible, you should pay attention. If it's in the Bible more than once, you should pay closer attention. But this is a weird passage. So I read all these commentaries and all these Bible scholars trying to figure out what's going on here. And some of them say, well, the word in Greek that Jesus used for dog here actually describes like a pet, a household pet. It's not a mangy mongrel street dog. Who cares? It's not nice to call somebody a dog, right? And Jesus did not speak Greek, most likely, in this interaction. The common language used there was Aramaic. Guess what? In Aramaic, there's only one word for dog. And that's what he called her. This was a term that, that the Jewish people would use when they would talk about non-Jewish Gentiles. I don't care how you carve it up. It isn't nice. And so the story continues. How does this woman respond? She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. What is going on in this story? Right? This is a wild story. There's probably, this is the reason why you haven't heard this brought up in church all the time. It's not one of the favorite Christian ones. Because this doesn't paint the picture of loving, cute, cuddly Jesus at all. This seems to paint the picture of offensive, rude judgmental, elitist Jesus. But it only does that if you don't notice the details and the context. I want to walk you through this because I think what is being taught here is critically important for us as Christ followers and for the church of God. And so we're going to go back through and we're going to dive in a little bit deeper on this passage. And so if if you're still here with me, we're in, in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to take a look a little bit closer. And the first thing I want to point out to you is the place that this happens right? This doesn't happen in Jerusalem or Capernaum where a lot of the stories of Jesus take place. Instead, it happens in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This was a Canaanite-controlled region. The Canaanites, they were incredibly hostile to the people of Israel. They had been enemies of God's people for generations. These were a polytheistic people that worshiped a lot of idols, a lot of other gods. They were not friends with the Israelites. But yet, This woman, this Canaanite woman, she comes and approaches Jesus, and she uses some titles to address Jesus. And so I want you guys to read that title out loud. I'll get to it, and then it's y'all's turn. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, Son of David. Now, if you look at these in the original language and everything, what she's using here are some Hebraic terms to address Jesus. And these terms, Lord and Son of David, were Jewish terms that they would use to address the Messiah. All right, These were terms that, that people would use. Not only was it really prestigious to be Son of David, David was like their boy. They loved David. And so if you were in the lineage of David, that was very prestigious, very respected, but it was also necessary in order to fulfill Messianic prophecy. This woman's coming to Jesus. She She's a Canaanite. She is not a Christ follower. She is not Jewish. She does not know anything about Jewish law or Jewish history, and yet she's addressing him using messianic terms that she doesn't believe. 
This would be very comparable if like somebody from a nation hostile to the U.S. came and they met our president and they were like, oh, my beautiful, wonderful, perfect president. You would know something's off there. You know that they're trying to, trying to get something for themselves, that there's an ulterior motive, and that's exactly what this woman's doing. She's coming, and she's addressing Jesus, trying to butter him up so she can get what she wants. And Jesus responds by saying nothing. See, the story, if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 15, I would love it if you go home and do that for homework this week. Read the rest of Matthew chapter 15. This story that we're reading right now follows right after Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and he confronts them about their hypocrisy. And you can see that theme continue here. This woman's coming. She's approaching Jesus with pretense. And then the disciples, they're all like, well, Jesus, send her away. She's bo- she keeps bothering us and asking us for stuff. She didn't even talk to them. She was just talking to Jesus, and these guys are trying to make it all about them. You can just see how this story drips with hypocrisy. And what this woman's trying to do is she is trying to approach a religious leader the way that she thinks religious leaders want to be approached, with flattery. We all try and approach when we want somebody to do something for us with a little bit of flattery, right? I mean, like when my wife gets up to go to the kitchen and my water bottle's empty, it's like, beloved would you please, sweet lady, fill up my water bottle for me, right? It's not like, get in there and fill up my water bottle. Then then I'm going to get slapped, right? We don't do that. We change the tone. Oh, love of my life, would you mind getting the kids up for me this morning? That's how we approach. Even my four-year-old daughter, she does the exact same thing. When she wants something, she's like, Daddy, can I have a popsicle? We've all learned the game, and that's what this woman's doing. She's playing the game, trying to get something that she wants, something that she needs, something that is critically important. She needs healing for her daughter who is unwell. She is in crisis. I guarantee you, before she came to Jesus, that she tried every doctor she could afford. She went to every shaman. She prayed to every single God that her people had. And after all that failed, she decided to even try the enemy. She would go and talk to this Hebrew healer, And she came and she asked him for something and she flattered, she was wearing the facade and Jesus cut through the fake to help this woman recognize that she thought she needed just a healer, but she needed something even more. She needed a savior. She needed a rescuer from her sin and from her brokenness and from her selfishness. And so Jesus confronts her in all this. And if you continue to read the exchange between the two of them, you start to pick up on these hints that show what Jesus is doing. And one of the things that you'll notice as we read through this story, that line, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. That seems like a pretty spicy line, a pretty racist thing for Jesus to say. But if you compare this to the account in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has another word in that, in that account. In that account, he says, I came first to the lost sheep of Israel. That's a very important nuance for you to notice because as Jesus says that, Jesus is pointing out his mission, that he came first to Israel, and he did. He was the promised Messiah to the Israelite people, but he expands his promise to everybody. And so if you read this and misunderstand and think that Jesus is being racist and rejecting this woman, then you haven't read the 14 chapters before. Because before this, you see Jesus had gone to this Roman centurion, had come to him for help, and he healed this man's servant. Romans were foreigners, not Jewish. 
You see earlier in the account in Matthew that he goes to the far side of the Sea of Galilee and he delivers multiple people from demons. That side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly inhabited by foreigners, non-Jewish Gentiles. Then we're even ignoring the woman at the well, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. She was a Samaritan. She was not Jewish. Jesus clearly did not have any issue whatsoever in interacting with and healing and ministering to people that were not Jewish. So that means something different has to be happening in the story. And all this ignores the fact of where the story took place. If Jesus really only came to the Israelite people, why isn't he in Israel in this story? He had gone to this other part, this part of entire and Sidon, this part that in, at some points in history was controlled by Israel, at other points it was not, but it was always inhabited by Canaanites. So if Jesus really didn't want anything to do with them, why is he visiting? Jesus confronts this woman's approach to him by clarifying his mission that he has come to save the lost, first in Israel, but that promise has been expanded to everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike. And as she continues to miss this and continues to press him, Jesus continues. (laughs) Sorry about that. I got a little excited last service and my throat's already having a hard time. So that's why we're drinking the throat coat right now. Sorry guys. I'm sure it's a shocker that I got excited. Here we go. Where was I? Jesus responded to this woman missing the point and continuing to press him further by pushing back. And Jesus continues to get more and more clear, more and more blunt, more and more offensive. Believe it or not, God is okay with offending us sometimes. Have you read the Bible? There's plenty of stuff in there that bothers me. There's things that offend me. There's things that if God had asked my opinion, I'd say, leave that part out, God. We don't need that. Right? I mean, think about it. That whole love your enemies care for those who have wronged you, that bothers me. What I prefer is it's like, give God a list of names and the lightning will fall, right? That's what I want. I am offended that God is okay whenever I am hurt, God commands me to love them back. That's offensive. The Bible teaches that sex should be saved for the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And in today's society, that is incredibly radical and offensive, but it's in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that 10%, a minimum of 10% of what we gain should be brought back to God. And I'll tell you, that's the one when I say that in church, people get quiet because they're offended. I've worked hard for what I've made. I need that 10%. If God can make anything, why don't he make his own 10%? I'm offended by that. God has no problem offending us if it helps break us out of what we think is best and focus on what he knows is best for us. Sometimes Jesus will offend to help us see what we truly need. And that's what he's doing with this woman. He keeps pushing. This woman came to meet with this religious leader. How many religious leaders do you think at that point in time were calling people dogs? Probably not very many. It shook her loose to help her see what she truly needed, that she truly needed Jesus. And that breakthrough comes and she responds to him in verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in this moment. Let me paraphrase what she's saying here. She's saying, Jesus, 
I came here thinking I was talking to the enemy, thinking I was coming to try and get something from a healer, from maybe a rabbi that was a little more special than the rest, but I recognize you're something different. You're something more, that you might just be God himself. And if you are, I will take whatever you'll give me because the scraps of heaven are greater than the feasts of anything else. And when she responds this to Jesus, Jesus responds by saying, wow, your faith is incredible. Jesus says this phrase, it says multiple times in the Bible that Jesus was amazed by the faith of someone. And to drive this point home, Jesus generally was only amazed by the faith of those who were not Israelites. And her daughter was healed. I think this passage is so important to pay attention to because it tells us that God will not bless your mask. He will not give his favor to your facade. God wants the real, the messy, the broken, the raw, the selfish you. And so I want to share, I think, two things that we can get out of this that we need to understand to embrace in order to truly be genuine and vulnerable before God. And here are the two things with 19 seconds that I got left. Shoot, here we go. First thing, this is the first thing you need to know in order to be genuine with God is that you can't be good enough. You can't, but that's our approach, right? We think if I do X, then God has to do Y. If I am good enough and I put more good out there and I act well and I talk right and I don't say that mean thing to that person that I'm frustrated with, then God will accept me, then God will love me, then God will give me what I want from God. But that whole idea of I get what I earn, it's a dangerous idea for a lot of reasons. First of all, I'm pretty sure I've earned a lot more bad than I've earned good with how I've behaved in my life. But secondly, any relationship that is based on the transaction of I do this and you do this is doomed to fail. If you have a transactional relationship with your work, with your spouse, with your loved ones, with your significant other, with your friends, then you will exhaust yourself trying to be what they want you to be in order to be loved, or they will give up on you when you have disappointed them enough times. But that's what religion teaches us. That's what life teaches us, that if I act good enough for them, then they will love us back. If I act good enough for God, then God will love me back which means you have to hide every insecurity. You have to hide every failure. You have to hide every crack and every sin and every inevitable mistake because if they know, then you've lost it all. There's this war hero uh, named Donald Dunnigan and he enlisted in 1952 in the Marine Corps and uh, quickly became uh, the youngest ever drill instructor. He enlisted when he was 18 years old, got that acclaimed uh, decoration promotion, and then he served uh, for 25 years, serving three tours in Vietnam. He was injured in the line of duty, re- received the Bronze Star and three Purple Hearts. I mean, this guy was a tough, grizzled Marine, and he spent 25 years of incredible service keeping everyone from knowing the truth. See, Donald Dunnigan had a secret. A secret that he feared if it came out, it would ruin his reputation. He would lose the respect of his unit, and the rest of his career and life would be marked with shame and embarrassment. 
He didn't tell anybody the truth the entire time he served. He didn't even admit it until he was 70 years old. He was in an interview with a film historian as he was being interviewed and sharing that he had actually been a child star when he was four years old. He had acted in some movies and things like that and was so successful that at four years old, he was providing for his entire family. And on his resume, his filmography of great opportunities was the one he was scared that his fellow Marines would discover. Donald Dunnigan the decorated, tough, drill instructor Marine had been the voice of Bambi. (laughs) And while Bambi might be a beloved Disney character, it is probably not the character that a Marine wants marking him the rest of his life. He hid it because he feared if they found out what would happen to him. We hide parts of who we are because we are scared if somebody finds out that it might change how they treat us and interact with us. We might be filled with embarrassment and shame. If God knew what I had done, if God sees how I have messed up, then God will not love me anymore. But I need to tell you something. He knows. God knows every detail of who you are. Psalm 139 says it this way. It says, you have searched me, Lord. You know me, you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. This is the scary one for me. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. I don't want him knowing what I'm thinking about saying. And this verse, if you read these verses, this can sound threatening. If God already knows all of it, that sounds bad. Right? But this should be comforting because if God really does know my every thought, he knows all the good thoughts and he already knows the bad thoughts. If God really knows my every choice, he knows all the good choices and he knows all the bad choices. He already knew all your secrets before Jesus died on the cross for your brokenness and your sins so that way you could be restored to a loving relationship with God. He gave it all knowing how bad we have been. You can't be good enough because God already knows how bad you've been. But this brings us to the second, much better point. You can't be good enough, but you can't be bad enough. Just look at the woman in this story. This woman was a Canaanite, a foreigner of of a tribe of people that had been enemies, who had assaulted, who had ravaged, who had attacked and terrorized God's people for generations. This woman would have grown up worshiping foreign gods like Molech and Asherah and Baal, the bad ones that we read about in the Old Testament, that practicing worship for these gods included sexual slavery, included prostitution, included child sacrifice. This woman had some red in her ledger and she came to Jesus putting on a front to try and manipulate him into doing for her what she needed. Jesus knew it all. And still, whenever she opened herself to being vulnerable with the God of the universe, he had compassion, accepted her, and healed her daughter. See, we... We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, said, therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, no guilt, no judgment. You don't have to be scared to be honest to God because he already knows who you are, what you've done. He knows every hurt you've experienced and every hurt that you have caused. And none of that will separate you from relationship with him because Romans 8.1 begins with there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8.37 ends saying no, for I am convinced that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, 
present or future or any power, neither height nor depth or anything in all creation can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing can separate you from him because you can't do anything to make him love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less. He already loves you limitlessly. That doesn't mean that there's not consequence to our sin. That whenever we choose to do life in a way other than God commands, then there is personal and financial and relational and legal fallout. But there is nothing you can do that will make you unworthy, unlovable, or unredeemable to God. That is why Jesus died for our brokenness, because we could not remove the barrier of disobedience and sin in our own life. Jesus did it for us, that if we choose to make him the king of our lives, to accept God as who he says he is in his word, then we can be restored to a loving relationship with God. So what does that mean for us, church, as we have negative seven minutes left? (laughs) It means that there's no perfect people allowed here. That if you got hurts, so do we. If you got hangups, so do we. If you have a past, so do we. If you need acceptance, if you need healing, if you need forgiveness, so do we. If you need God, so do we. I think if we want to be a church with the heart of God, that we've got to be honest and vulnerable with who God is, with who we are, and we need to be honest and vulnerable with each other to help fill the gaps of our sin and brokenness and help each other heal. That is why here at The Point we offer things like Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a fantastic resource to help you deal and heal with the deepest hurts, habits, and hangups in your life. These are a wonderful group of people that are trained and prepared to help you deal with the baggage that we have in our life from our own sin and the sin from other people. And after the service, there's a table set up in the lobby that please go visit them, ask them how they can serve you and help you. They would love that. But if right now you're sitting here and you are feeling the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of things that you have done or things that were done to you, then we want to take it a step further and we want to pray for you. After the service, you've been carrying this burden, worried that you are not good enough for God. Join the club. You're not bad enough for God either. Let us pray for you. Let us support you. I want to pray for all of you, but if you would love somebody to spend a little bit more time ministering and praying for you, then after the service, we'll have prayer partners and pastors right up here at the front that would love to spend a little time helping you accept that you can never be good enough to earn your way to to God and you can never be bad enough for God to not love you. When we accept that, that is when the healing, the growth, the maturity truly begins. Let me pray for you. God, God, we live in a world that regardless of what we say is based on conditional love. That even the people I love most in my life, the closest to unconditional, my wife, my kids, it's easier to love them because they're nice back to me. But God, that is not the relationship you have with us. Because you have loved us even at our worst, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You demonstrated your love for us in that way that even at our very worst, you gave us your very best. 
So God, I pray that the lies of the enemy, that we tell ourselves that we must hide, that we can't even go to church, we can't take time to speak to you, that we can't really be a Christian because if God knew, if the church knew, we could never be here, that that is a lie, that you welcome those who need you the most, that there is no shame and there is no condemnation. So God, I pray for everyone in here who has bought the lie, that they will today recognize that the God of the universe already knows and has loved and has opened his arms arms for them. God, let us trust you and for you to set us free. It's in your name we pray. Amen.